one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 340 for the week of Sunday, October 2nd, 2011. I'm Soy Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gina Herlihy. Welcome, Gina. Oh, good evening, Sawyer. How are you? Doing great, thanks. Welcome as well, Gene McCulka. Can't wait to dig into this particular show, Sawyer. Thanks a lot for uh, having me on board. Of course, and thank you as well to the DARPA man himself, in this case, Mark Ratterman. Hello, Sawyer. I got a message for you. What's the message? Well, I'm going to say the person's first name, and we'll see if you know who I'm talking about. Okay. First name is, first name is June. I know the person. Go ahead with the rest. June Scobie Rogers. I saw June Scobie Rogers today. At the 100-year Starship Study Symposium in Orlando, and her message to you is uh, um, nothing particularly about college, but where I had mentioned that you had uh, started college, she said, "Well, they'll name a wing after him before long." <laughs> <laughs> for those who don't know, June Scobie Rogers is one of the founders of Challenger Centers for Space Science Education, which I am a part of. And it was quite a thrill to meet her after hearing, having you uh, talk about her and, and, and knowing what we do about the Challenger Centers. Oh, well, that's interesting. And it, you said that you met her at the DARPA 100-Year Starship Symposium, which was held in Orlando, Florida. And, Mark, you mentioned this because you were there. And you maybe care to tell us a little bit about this event? <laughs> Well, let me ask first. This is a question. So uh, anybody, again, pitch in with the answer. Um, well, you know, first of all, I've, I've got to say I'm going to disappoint everybody probably a 100 percent. And uh, I'll give you some hint as to why I'm saying how badly I'm going to disappoint you in talking about the 100 YSS. Uh, does anybody remember the movie, I think it was back in the 80s, Top Gun? It had Tom Cruise. His his character's name mm-hmm. was Maverick. Right. And there was a scene in the movie, I think, towards the beginning where they're up in their F-14 Tomcat and they're trying to intercept uh, enemy aircraft that are inbound towards the carrier group. And, and uh, you know, his, his, his uh, nav and gunner... Uh, is a guy named Goose in the back, and Goose is telling him, you know, vectoring him towards his target. And and next thing you know, here's this blur goes by, like wingtip to wingtip almost. 
and uh, and Maverick says, "What was that?" And Goose's answer is, "What was what?" Anybody remember that? Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, that's uh, that's the short version of uh, about fifty three hours of uh, one hundred year Starship uh, weekend. Um, you know, I'll say that it was absolutely phenomenal. And when I looked at the information online to uh, to kind of give myself a feeling of do I really want to do this? It's a couple of days out of town. It's travel. Um, the event was actually free. So in that respect, um, if anybody would question something of this nature as to whether it's worth it, take a look at the facts as to as to what you see about it, and uh, it'll be a pretty easy decision when it's when it's something that's no cost. If it had cost money. I, I'm not part of the conference world and, and things that are part of education and business like this, but I suspect it would have been a very pricey event to go to, and and it would be well worth it at a at a price, and that's because of the caliber of the people that were speaking. There were, I think I said this on uh, on Google Plus and probably Twitter, that there were literally dozens and dozens of speakers. Um, Men and women that had uh, PhD and and other initials that I don't even know the the meaning of and titles that I don't understand with their names. Um, let me just give you a, a quick background on it. Uh, the Starship study was announced in October of 2010. They started out with a workshop to bring some some people together, some visionaries. To, to plan what they could do to seed research that would enable interstellar flight. They came up with some requests for information. They put together a, a public solicitation seeking abstracts for papers and topics for discussion panels. They made an announcement that, uh, that this was going to happen, which of course was September 30th, October 1st, and October 2nd in Orlando. And this symposium presented papers. They had panel discussions, special events. Um, the last event of the uh, of the weekend was was today, and I'm, I guess I'll start at the at the end because it was such a key part of of what was discussed actually on one of the tracks. And the the end of it was communicating the vision, and uh, it had June Scobie Rogers, uh, Douglas Trumbull. He's a film director and a special effects supervisor for movies of like Silent Running and Brainstorm, Hollywood type. They had Anusa Ansari from the uh, X Prize. She was there. Uh, Jeff Silver, producer from Biscayne Pictures, uh, did some little films like Tron Legacy, Terminator Salvation, 300, you know, a few little movies. There were uh, two young ladies that were there. I say young is that they were they were school age children. And they were there for uh, questions as to what kind of things do you find entertaining? You know, the the moderator asked him, do you like TV, movies, Internet, video games? And, and the girls said yes. <laughs> and so they were talking about communicating the vision. Uh, let me go to the beginning now. The, the keynote speaker was Ariel Waldman. Uh, she's one of the 50 most influential people in Silicon Valley. 
an organization that uh, I would like to to dig into and get a better grasp of is spacehack.org. And one of the things that she said in her keynote address on Friday was that uh, along the idea of if you this has to do with uh, Maker Fair, and they say the Maker Bill of Rights is that if you can't open it, you don't own it. And she's a big fan of open collaboration. And Space Hack is about uh, hacking space. She said that she worked for NASA for a, a time, and one of the things that she learned is that to be part of be part of space exploration, you don't have to work at NASA. And so she left. And her focus is finding ways to participate in space exploration. Um, she's she's doing some phenomenal things, and she was a fascinating speaker to hear start with. Um, the next day on Saturday had the uh, Virgin Galactic president and CEO, George Whitesides. He spoke for about 45 minutes, and um, you know he brought a, a, a little bit of the dream of Virgin Galactic and suborbital flight. And when you get into the some of the nitty gritty, there was a whole series of uh, they referred to them as tracks for the weekend, T R A C K, and each track ran through the day with multiple speakers uh, for close to two hours, and then you'd have a break, and and you could move around from track to track, and and they talked about time distance solutions, parentheses propulsion one. Another time-distance solutions track was Starship Technologies one. One of the presentations on that one was ultra-high specific impulse indium FEEP thruster for precursor interstellar exploration. How about a uh, another presentation, a necessary condition for practical communications at cosmic distances? How about fusion propulsion comparisons? Uh, the track that I was in on Friday was biology and space medicine. They talked about crowdsourced R&D, biomech simulation, uh, a hypothesis on protection from space radiation through the use of new therapeutic gases. And that was a gentleman from uh, NASA Marshall Space Flight Center. Um, another another discussion in the biology and space medicine that I was in on on Friday was fascinating. It was a woman from University of Massachusetts uh, Medical College, and she talked about making aliens. Making aliens? Did I hear that right? (laughs) Making aliens. And I I talked to one of the, uh, just for a little break on on the brain-numbing stuff here, I talked to um, one of the people that was behind the support of this event and i believe they were many of them with darpa possibly nasa ames i really really didn't get the rundown and uh, i said you know i said i've got a pen that i have been carrying in my pocket at work for the entire year i had at least it was at least half full of ink because you could see where the ink was i said i ran it out of ink this weekend i took more notes now, through yesterday, I took 22 wow. pages of handwritten notes. Today, in just four hours, I think I probably took another eight or ten. And so I, I was joking about, uh, do, you, do you want me to talk for ten minutes, ten hours, or ten days? Um, I still want to find – oh, Making Aliens. 
Yeah, um, I'm, I'm intrigued by this one. <laughs> well, uh, the the woman's name was Athena Andre, Andratus. And um, she said, think about arc ships, long-term voyages to the stars that could be multi-generational. Uh, many of the speakers talked about you have to be self-sufficient. You're in a closed environment. When you get there, of course, you have to survive the journey. So that that has to do with starship design. And there was a presentation on starship design. There was discussions about starship maintenance and repairs. Um, but she said, when you get there, you'll probably have domes. You'll live in domes to start with. And then you'll terraform your the planet. And the other possibility is genetic engineering. She said, we're bad at terraforming, and our attention span is worse because terraforming could take decades and, and many, many years. That's assuming that we learn how to do that. We're not doing a real good job in, uh, in taking care of our own planet. Um, she said, so it looks like genetic engineering is going to be the way we go to, you know, for the win to, to survive on a new planet. She said, with enhancements to us at the genetic level, the question is, will we still be human if we survive? And she, re she compared terraforming to being like a battering ram, and genetic engineering is like a scalpel. Um, you know, and here's the question. Do you want to live in an air-conditioned bus, a dome, or do you want to move out? And she talked about have you know developing accelerated diversity through genetic engineering. She said, you know, aliens, we may not be able to love aliens either biologically or culturally. You know, if we change the the human being into something that is alien, would we love ourselves? They talked about well, what would the minimum breeding pool be? To, uh, wow. to take a species to the stars. And they said if you had, uh, and, and this is, I mean, there was so much of this weekend that went so far over my head. And I picked the track that I was in because I thought, okay, you know, I've watched Star Trek and Star Wars, <laughs> and I know about warp drive and that stuff. And they, they had presentations on warp drive. Okay, they had warp engines, warp mechanics 101. Hmm. I thought, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for something that I know nothing about. And that was the uh, that was the biology and, and space medicine. And uh, she she had the question. She said, "How many generations alien and Earth until we're no longer able to interbreed?" And she said, uh, "And this is a statement. There were so many things I got half statements and got lost trying to write it down. Uh, when you tweak genetics to optimize for one trait, you're likely to hurt yourself." in other areas or you may be optimized in such a way that that you lose that that flexibility that our that our our, our current genetics gives us there was a uh, another presentation in the track i was in about artificial gravity they talked about um, the countermeasures that are part of keeping people healthy in space and and we're talking about six months i think they said the person that had been in uh, weightlessness for the longest amount of time and I didn't get the number written down, was, I want to say, 420 days. And so we've got a, a sample of one as to what the effect is of long-term weightlessness, and it only goes out to that amount of time. 
and somebody asked the question, well, how long did it take that individual to recover? And they said, well, they didn't think that was anything unusual that they, they recovered fairly well. But you get muscle atrophies. You get changes to, to muscle response, to uh, your, your fast and, and slow twitch muscle response. And, you know, if that's something that anybody listening to me has, has never heard of, I'm right there with you. I never heard of that either. Um, blood volume goes down when you're in weightlessness. Red blood cells go down. They're talking about effects on vision, that, that you can have blurry vision, and then in some cases, it doesn't fully return to normal. Um, so weightlessness has a problem. Okay, so we need to work on artificial gravity. How much? Well, we've got experience on the moon, which is about a quarter G, I think. And we've got experience on Earth, which is one G. And they talked about uh, hyper-G, you know, higher than 1G. And we've got some experience with hyper-G. And they say, well, it'd probably be easier to adapt to a higher gravity than it would be to, to zero-G. Um, one of the statements that uh, that was made in the panel on artificial gravity, and this was just general, it wasn't about about that topic, but they said, you know, in a, in a long journey to the stars, people are going to get hurt and not come back. Is that something that we can accept? I was in the Habitats and Environmental Science track on Saturday. We had somebody there talk about artificial lighting. Lighting. Hey, I never thought of that. What happens if you have a light bulb go out? You know, and they said, well, presumably we'll be using LED lighting, energy efficient, lasts a long time. But what happens when it goes out? Do you carry spares? Do you carry a lot of spares with you? Do you uh, develop something that you can repair? Or are you just going to have to replace it? Or do you need to have manufacturing capability? You're probably going to have to be able to manufacture things on a long, multi-decade, multi-hundred-year journey. And so I guess um, to kind of pause on details and go back to generalities here, the, uh, a lot, the focus of many of the individual presentations got into incredible detail. And it got into both the ethics of things and how would we feel doing this? Is this something that we would want to do? The track chair that uh, that that I met this the second day, it was uh, Dr. Chris McKay. He said, you know, with all of these problems, do we want to just send the robots? And uh, there's a lot of things to solve. Um they had uh, a presentation on algae 360 microfarms and got a phenomenal education on algae. And uh, I, want a, I want my little algae microplants so that I can, you know, have some really cool stuff like, uh, you know, just put biomass in there and get out protein, carbs, lipids, uh, algal oil. You can make nutraceuticals, carmaceuticals, <laughs> and biodiesel from. Hey, I want one of these. Yeah, but what would it taste like? <laughs> they they had I I missed it. They had some algae chips that they passed out Saturday oh, after lunch. Oh, they did, <laughs> and I didn't get one. They had, the little, they had the little package. They took it out of the wrapper and they said, "Okay, take one, pass it down." And they gave one to the other row and it take one, pass it down. And it never made it past the first half of the room. And I was sitting in the third row. So doggone it! I guess I should have sat up in the first row. <laughs> I wanted to try an algae chip. I'm ready. It sounds like you were green with envy then. Ah, yes. ah. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. yeah. Thing, you know. But um, you know, hey, if you can't eat an algae chip, what's the odds of being picked on this Starship crew? Oh, and by the way, statement that was made at the end of the day today: 
they said if you're on this first starship headed for a distant distant world if you're halfway there and you haven't been passed then we waited too long for you to go yeah you kind of want somebody to pass you halfway there so that you know not only will you know that the the concept is is working but that it's been approved upon you would want the human race to accomplish that uh when you're in route I think there was a uh, David Gerald of uh, Trouble with Tribbles fame uh, had written a Star Trek novel like that, where the Enterprise sort of encounters one of these generational starships, and it, it, it you know, they were, and and the culture clashes that that were occurring. Something that I'd love to to sort of dive into a little bit more when when they talked about the sociological problems. I'm sure if you're you're on a 100 year mission, there's going to be you know, new mores and new, essentially a new enclosed society created, and and humanity would probably go ahead and turn off a lot of the, a lot of the stuff we have here back on Earth and sort of create its own sort of social, you know, I don't want to say social network, but it's sort of its own 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 society with its own mores and things like that. So it it would be kind of interesting to see if they dived into that at all. Yeah, they did. Uh Again, that was tracks that I wasn't in on because I I stuck with the the I decided okay how am I, I you know I could I could jump around and I talked to one of the reporters from space.com mm-hmm. and uh, she said I kind of hopped around I was in this and I was in that and you know she wanted to get a feel for everything I said I thought about it but I just wanted to I basically I figured I'm gonna dive in the deep end of the pool right. and uh, you know I'm gonna survive this thing and I did and. Uh, so for me, it was biology and space medicine the first day, and the second day it was habitats and environmental science. Uh, had a, a gentleman who's also a science fiction author, and I probably had to talk about the sci- sci-fi writers panels, mm-hmm. but uh, Jeff Landis, he's from NASA Glenn Research Center. So he's a bona fide scientist, and he's also a sci-fi writer. Uh, but he spoke to the habitats and environmental science track on a plasma shield for an interstellar vehicle. He showed calculations. Boys and girls, math is very important. But don't panic. If math isn't your thing, there's plenty of skills that are going to be needed on a world ship or a colony starship. So, uh, you know, don't don't let that throw you. But they talked about how many meters of, of plasma shielding would suffice to take care of interstellar dust, to take care of of uh, hydrogen atoms in interstellar space, and he talked about how many atoms you're going to run into, you know, over a, a certain amount of time. He <laughs> uh, let's see, there was 0.1 atom per cubic centimeter of space of hydrogen. I didn't know space was that full. 0.1 atom in a cubic centimeter. I mean, that's a tenth of an atom. So, so you go, you know one centimeter and you've run into 10 atoms of hydrogen so what's that going to do to your starship a little pitting uh, maybe blast the paint off the front uh, if you run into something i think he said if you run into something like a rock he said it would be a annihilating explosion your ship would be gone so anyway he talked about plasma shielding um there was a gentleman who I'm, I'll, I'll mention this, then I'll go on to the sci-fi writers panel, and then we'll go on to another topic. He talked about heat recyclers. He said, um, you know, 
we're going to break the second law of thermodynamics in the next few years. He said, they're going to have to rewrite the laws of thermodynamics. He said, and when we do, he said, there will be, he said, you'll, <laughs> um, there'll be commercial applications for computers, refrigeration, residential, industrial by 2025, power grid. In other words, what supplies power to home and industry all over the world. The power grid could be scrapped by 2030. Is it, it, Wow. And, and, used, and, and what would be in its place? It, it has to do with heat recycling. Okay. And he talked about thermal capacitors, having a device that would take and store heat and release heat. Uh, a, a, a mechanically driven heat storage device. Um, <laughs> he said the worldwide energy use is somewhere around, I wrote this down, 18 TW. I guess that's 18 terawatts. It's going to grow 30% in 20 years. He said, and it'll be 20% of the world's economy is going to be on nothing but energy. Yeah. He said by 2060 that an interstellar flyby to, to another star could be paid for by uh, by this energy savings. He said heat becomes a commodity that you can recycle. He said there's already a company that has developed a Dewar flask that can keep a cup of tea hot for ten thousand years. He said huh? this is he said this is game changing technology. He said when we develop this, um, oh, give you an idea. Talking about heat exchangers, a glass of water. Just a, a tumbler with drink with drinking water in it. He said a glass of water has the equivalent energy. If you were able to get the atoms to to release all of those bonds on neutrons and electrons and protons, if you're able to release the energy in a glass of water, it's equivalent to a tenth of a kilogram of TNT. That's intense. It, so I mean, there was so much out of the box thinking. That uh, that was pretty much the the norm for for the tracks that I was in. That um, it's like a hundred year starship. You know, hey, we got a, there's it's going to be a busy hundred years, and there are going to be some breakthrough technologies that'll happen um, during that hundred years. So it was totally exciting. Uh, I, I I learned bits and pieces about things. There are going to be. There were papers that were presented. I asked the track chair from from Friday, the uh, biology and space medicine. I talked to him this morning for about ten minutes, uh, Dr. Neil Pellis. I said, "How did you get the speakers for your track?" I said, "Were they volunteers? Did uh, did you ask people to speak?" He said, "No." He said, "People had to write a paper and present it." He said, "On our track." Uh, which was just half a day. He said we had about 38 papers. He said some of them you could look through pretty quickly and tell that it was pretty far out there and that you know you you weren't going to have them speak for you. He said the other ones we whittled it down and um, and and picked and picked the people. The papers, uh, by way of housekeeping, are going to be all of the contributing authors to this symposium were invited to submit their papers. To the Journal of British Interplanetary Society after the symposium for editorial review and consideration for publication. That way, the papers will be preserved, uh, associated with unique meeting. Mm -hmm. uh, they expect to be published in the first few months of 2012. I talked to one of the public affairs folks, and they said to keep an eye on the um, on the website 
which we'll have the link in the show notes, but it's uh, www.100yss.org. So www.100yss.org. And uh, that they'll they'll have information there. And to the people that attended, they'll be seeing emails that'll um, keep us up to date on, on the information that's available for us. Sci-Fi Writers Panel Friday, they had... Uh, Oh, let's see. Who was it that talked to us Friday? Oh, Stephen Baxter, Robert J. Sawyer, Gregory Benford, Alan Steele, uh, Jeffrey Landis. <laughs> and um, they they had it. The, the moderator, which was uh, uh, Gay Haldeman. That's Joe Haldeman's wife. She was the okay. moderator both days. Uh, she asked a question to start with about, about what would your 100-year starship be like? And this panel... They went for 35 minutes amongst themselves, just back and forth, back and forth, a very lively, um, different ideas coming from each of them as to what it would be like. Um, one of them asked the question, how do you ensure life, liberty, and happiness? Yeah, uh, that's what I was sort of getting at with, with the sociological aspects of things. Mm-hmm. They uh, they talked about going to the stars and and uh, Robert Sawyer he made the statement he said I don't think you'll be going to the stars in a hundred years I think we're talking about a thousand year jumps um, and 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 uh, oh let's see who was it I've got I've got initials because I couldn't write fast enough if you can <laughs> if you can imagine somebody that doesn't type in fact if anybody's wondering how come there wasn't more on Twitter. It's because some of the people that were there, just to be able to listen, was was surviving. Yeah. And, you know, the thought of, oh, Alan Steele, he made this statement, what if we're the most advanced race in the galaxy? That would be an uncomfortable notion, wouldn't it? Yeah, that would be scary. <laughs> Jeffrey Landis, he said, you know, in eight years, the, the Mars Exploration Rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, in eight years, they've done what a geologist would do in a day. But the robots are getting better fast. He said, you know, robots are going to be able to do even more, even quicker. There's a, a big curve that we're that we're starting to see here. And and occasionally people hear about things that that are going on in the world of competition for like mm. lunabotics and and different things. So, um, golly. Hey, Mark, it sounds like you spent like three days over at Singularity University. <laughs> uh, I'll stop. But um, people need to people need to go to the 100yss.org. They need to go to spacehack.org. And the uh, the big disappointment for me was that they said no recording in the uh, meeting rooms. When you went in the meeting rooms, presentations, no recording. They did do video audio recording, but it was done by the uh, by the people that were there for support. So right. they tell me it'll be an archive, a historical archive of the event. They don't know if it's going to be released to the public. Not really sure how they can do it. And when you consider that you got uh, Saturday, I think six tracks. Friday was five tracks going on simultaneously. You know, for for half a day and for a full day, that's a lot of uh, that's a lot of media that, that that got recorded. And you know, if we think about what we do on the show, how would we uh, <laughs> how would we present something of that volume and and have it be uh, but when you're taking a look at a 20 or 30 minute presentation hey I want to hear that I, I sure hope it gets out there for us and we'll let you know if it does yeah, who knows Mark maybe in about a hundred maybe another 
no, oh, maybe around uh, 20, you know, 2250, 2251, somebody will be on one of these 100-year starships looking at the symposium going, wow, let's see if they were right. <laughs> would be and then there will be those poor media people using whatever technology they have reporting on it. Exactly. <laughs> oh, and I'll throw this in. If, if anybody wants to talk to me directly, I'll be glad to talk to anybody. We'll work out a time and a way to get in touch with each other. I'll be glad to yak about this stuff because it was an absolute thrill. And maybe I can make some sense out of my notes if I uh, actually sit down and look at it. I was going to say, I want, want to hijack that notebook of yours if you can make copies of that. Which, of oh, course, yeah. if the best way most likely to contact any of us would be through our Talking Space email, right? And yours is? Mark at TalkingSpaceOnline.com. And I'll tell you this, and I promise I'll shut up. <laughs> the uh, Somebody came up with the idea. It was in Communicating the Vision. And it was... Um, maybe we could have a, a a reality show let's call it survival mars and how about we take all the celebrities that we don't like and send them there <laughs> that is brilliant <laughs> and somebody else pitched in and said we could get people to contribute send their favorite celebrity to Mars and that would raise the money for the starship. <laughs> so on that note, 100yss.org. Uh, anybody wants to talk to me, get in touch and uh, that keep is... your eyes. There, there's so much to keep your eyes on. Alrighty then. So continuing along, our next story is about Jiangyang, which is the Chinese space lab whose first piece was successfully launched into space by China, right? Yep. Um, the uh, uh, Heavenly Palace, as it's called, um, it, it was launched on September 29th. There's a little bit of a falsehood about what this thing really, really is. Um, I'm looking at an article on uh, Space Daily in their Dragon Space section um, that was written by a gentleman by the name of Morris Jones in Sydney, Australia. Uh, he basically uh, said that uh, this really isn't, quote, the space station that everybody's sort of touting. This is a small little mini lab that is essentially a mini lab slash uh, docking target. Uh, so it, it basically is a, their, their really tiny version of Skylab slash almost the the Agena, almost analogous to the Agena docking um, uh, target spacecraft that we had during the Mercury days. Um, the uh, the Shenzhou 8 spacecraft will be uh, launched at it. Uh, this will be a unpiloted spacecraft and it will, will uh, dock with uh, with the with the quote station for a little little bit and then uh, undock. If all goes well with that procedure, uh, Shiansu 9 will fly sometime uh, in early 2012, I believe. Um, this time with a crew on board, uh, they'll live on a on, on the laboratory, docked with uh, with with their their uh, their mothercraft, the Shiansu, for a short short period of time, then come home. Uh, Shiansu 10 will also fly to. Uh, to the station, and that will probably be the last time that uh, uh, 
that you'll see a, a, a spacecraft pay a call to the to the thing separately. Um, so they're also saying too that the first female uh, Takanaut is going to be on one of those missions, either Shansu nine or ten, um, according to the article. Uh, but this is a this is a big deal. Um, this is a, another step in the Chinese program. They're slowly getting to know rendezvous and docking at this point. They don't think they've accomplished that particular part of that yet. But uh, um, I'm I'm not exactly too sure too sure on that one. Although the article says that uh, um, they're they're trying to go ahead and and get more um, more expertise in rendezvous and docking. The interesting part about this was I, I saw something on, on Guardian UK, uh, a little bit of a video, and I think um, NASA Watch also posted it. It was essentially the, the an animation of what the whole module is going to be all about. Did anybody catch the uh, the music that was associated with that? If I'm correct, the Chinese played America the Beautiful. And and I'm I'm sitting there. I'm I'm like. All right, what's going on here? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I'm I'm thinking, what, what, what's that one all about? Is it just simply somebody liked the name, liked the liked the tune, and thought it was appropriate and threw it on in there and didn't realize that it was actually a patriotic song from from the United States? Um, did they just simply like the tune? Um, were they going ahead and giving the U.S. a tip of the hat, basically saying that? Because of you guys and and our you know of course our our, our Russian friends that uh, we are you know we're standing on your shoulders that type of thing or you know was it a dig at us I I, I just don't know what to make of that one I, you know obviously it's caused a little bit of a buzz and maybe it was done deliberately to cause a little bit of a buzz I don't know if it was a tip of a hat to us and the Russian partners for allowing them to do what they can I, I mean. The first ones that were actually – that sent a satellite into space or that sent anything into space was Russia. So I figured they would have paid a tribute to either America and Russia, not that. The, the other option is that it could just be an honest mistake and that there was – you know, they didn't realize what they were doing, but that seems highly unlikely. There, there has to be some method to the madness because I've seen everybody on Twitter that I've read reporting the article has said that it was mistakenly played. But I'm not entirely sure about that, knowing the secrecy behind the Chinese government. I agree with Sawyer. I think it's highly unlikely it was done in error. I think it's weird. Um, I'm not so sure it was done in malice, but it's just a little odd. Yeah, I'm still kind of scratching my head on that one. I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what to make of that. Either, either it's a, it's a salute or it's, or it's a dig or something. I just, I'm, I'm a little confused. And maybe they did it to confuse us. I don't know. So it, it, it should be really, really uh, – I'd love to find out what really, really happened with that. I really would. If it was done to confuse us, obviously if we're discussing this, they succeeded. Yeah, exactly. So it, again, it, it added to more buzz for the flight. So if that was the case and that's why they did it, then it worked. Definitely we got did, more buzz, yeah. Yeah, and we, we fell right into their clutches. <laughs> Well, we are the media. That's what we do. <laughs> Speaking of falling into people's clutches, I think we, we the media, also fell into Elon Musk's clutches this week, didn't we? <laughs> Indeed we did. Uh, an announcement this past week was made by 
SpaceX's Elon Musk, as well as a video was released of a very interesting feature about the Falcon. And it has to do with reusability of everything? Yeah, sorry. According to what um, the the video that's been placed out, hopefully we'll, we'll get this up on, on our site too, um, along with the Chinese thing. But um, the uh, I, I'm looking at this, and okay, the first stage of this this re, totally reusable Falcon system is jettisoned, and then uh, sort of lands back vertically, you know. With boosters, with uh, you know retro rockets firing and all that, it lands right on what appears to be sort of like an analogous to a helipad. It lands right in the center of that. Second stage, the same thing. Once it's once its job gets done, it goes ahead, re-enters the atmosphere. Apparently, there's a um, some sort of uh, you know heat resistant, looks like sort of a heat resistant tile system, sort of embedded on this thing, and it re-enters the atmosphere. It too writes itself. Fires a retro and again lands vertically, um, and then of course the dragon itself, you know, going to the ISS, uh, doing its thing, and then coming back and also landing uh, on something analogous to a helipad with its retro rockets firing. I'm sitting there and, and I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm thinking, how much fuel is that going to take to go ahead and get that up there? And okay, fine, you're reusing the system, and and there there is some. Economy to that, but um, is it cost effective? Is it cost effective to operate? Number one, and number two, is it cost effective for the client that you're serving? Um, for instance, the uh, for the U.S. taxpayer in the case of the ISS, uh, how much more extra are we going to have to pay for all of that? Um, is it going to be baked into the cost? Uh, for all this reusability. So, uh, again, I mean, uh, the, the shuttle, again, was a marvelous piece of equipment. It was – pieces of it were reusable, the SRBs and the orbiter itself, but really did it save money? Was it cost-effective and did it, did it do that? The answer is probably not. So I'm wondering, is this system also going to go down that route? Is it going to be cost-effective to operate and is it going to be cost-effective for the client? Um, you know, and I'm not just talking about the U.S. taxpayer with reference to the uh, delivering crew and cargo to the ISS. Um, I'm also talking about somebody that wants to launch a satellite or something along those lines. Are is that going to be this whole reusable system going to be cost effective for them? Um, don't know. The other interesting thing about this, and part of this, Gene, you and I discussed not during the show, but during the week right. after the announcement was made. Other of this was just my personal observations. One thing that's very interesting is that the first stage goes up, rockets fire, comes back down. Second stage, rockets fire, that comes back down. The actual crew compartment, that lands on land and comes back down. Right. Not only do you need the fuel to get up, but you also need the fuel to not only come down, but come down in a controlled burn. Right. Not like the solid rocket boosters, which tumble and float as they go back down when they run out, and then at a certain altitude, the parachutes deploy, and they straighten themselves out. We're talking about a controlled landing on an actual landing pad, not a launch pad, a landing pad, mm -hmm. which, according to the video, it appears 
as if there were three or four different landing pads within a certain area, which means how big is this launch complex going to actually be if you're going to have four full-size landing pads? And will multiple stages be able to land at the same time? So will stage one and stage two be able to come down in the same spot within a couple of minutes of each other? Hey, Sawyer, if you look at that video again, you will see that it is indeed um, Kennedy Space Center and that landing pad seemed looked like it was to the east of the shuttle landing facility. Right. Yeah, I, I, I noticed the same thing there, Gina. Yeah, it looked like it was multiple pads, though. You know, not just one landing pad, but it looked like there was three or four of them there, almost like helipads. Yeah. Um, the, the, the thing I thought about, too, was the old uh, Delta Clipper that Pete Conrad was working on back in the 90s, uh, essentially single-stage to orbit. Um, and I also thought of uh, David Mazin's company also working on single stage to orbit. So I'm wondering if that's sort of a precursor. You know, is this what SpaceX is, is sending a signal? We, we too are kind of sort of playing with that idea because it's been long rumored that Jeff Bezos and uh, uh, Blue Origin is also playing with single stage to orbit. What, what worries me though a little bit is, okay, um, a f I, I don't remember exactly when, somebody in the audience can check me on this, but Falcon um, Heavy was announced uh, not too long ago. They want to get that on the pad at Vandenberg, um, according to, if I recall from the announcement, in January of next year. That's supposed to be out there on the pad at Vandenberg Air Force Base, ready to go in January. We are still working on Falcon 9. We're still working on perfecting Dragon. Hopefully, we're going to find that out in the not-too-distant future, although Elon Musk said that the uh, during the, uh, the event at the uh, National Press Club, uh, launch that um, the uh, uh, because of the Russian delay, it's probably going to delay their their test flight to the ISS. Um, but they want to go ahead and make sure that that system is working and and we can at least have have a, a cargo delivery system. Um, so that's going to have to be tested. So you've got all these things kind of sort of working together, and I'm wondering if they're they're going to be overtaxed over there, and I'm just wondering if they've got enough brain power to to deal with all of this. And do they need to hire more people, or, or can they do it do it with the the personnel that they've got? Um, and what's the fact that you know we still have to deal with the, the the repercussions from Progress 44 tells me that that should be our main thrust here. We shouldn't lose sight of that. That we've got to go ahead and make sure that we can get cargo to the ISS and eventually crew. So why don't we work out that problem first? And then we'll, we'll go on to the other thing. So I guess really what I'm trying to say is, are, are they spreading themselves too thin? Comments? Is SpaceX sort of spreading themselves too thin? Do you guys think so? I think they're uh, establishing themselves as a premier commercial launch provider. With all, of these, with all of these other projects in the pipeline? Yeah, they won't be faulted for not being aggressive. Yeah, but you know, there's also such thing in my eyes of as you know, biting off a little bit more than you can chew. Yeah, I think what they've managed to do is put out a pretty slick PR piece. The only way they can really establish themselves as the premier commercial launch provider is to deliver. I mean, Gina, you're right. I'm, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a, a I'm from Missouri. Show me. 
I'm not really going to believe it until it's sitting on the pad and ready to go. And I, I lump that. I'm not just saying uh, Falcon Heavy. I'm also saying the the SLS. Uh, I'm not going to believe it until I'm, I'm sitting there covering the, the, its first launch. Okay, so let's continue on then to our final story. And our final story is about the Space Shuttle Enterprise, which is scheduled to go to the Intrepid Sea Air and Space Museum. Now, the Intrepid Sea Air and Space Museum has announced that they possibly have plans to change the location of where they will be placing the Space Shuttle Enterprise, rather than moving their current Concorde on loan from British Airways, they might possibly put it at the parking lot across the street from Pier 86 where the actual ship is docked. Now, I'm going to state for the record immediately that I am a consultant to the Intrepid Sierra and Space Museum, and in such, I am going to recuse myself from this conversation. So, Gene, Mark, Gina, let's continue. Yep. Um, I'll, and for the record, too, I'll have to say I'm a member of uh, the Intrepid Sea Air and Space Museum, but uh, I'm not going to go ahead and, and uh, let, that, uh, let that hold me back here. Um, according to an article I'm looking at from the Houston Chronicle, uh, the problem was that the, the uh, Intrepid didn't own the land where it had hoped to display Enterprise. Um, or doesn't own the land where they're hoping to display Enterprise. Apparently, it's owned by uh, um, by the, the state of New York State Department of Transportation. Uh, again, um, I'm not. This is a whole big hullabaloo. It's it's caused um, a old wound to be reopened. Uh, that wound uh, being uh, over in in Clear Lake, Texas, in Houston. Uh, a lot of the politicos over there are are screaming foul and uh, are trying to see if they could go ahead and and literally bring the uh, the issue back to light again and possibly hijack Enterprise from New York and bring it down to uh, to Clear Lake over at um, uh, the uh, Johnson Space Flight Center where a lot of people felt Enterprise uh, belonged anyway. Um, Gene, can I just make a quick correction sure. again? Um, the actual bill states that it would move Enterprise out to California and endeavor to uh, Texas is what I can yeah, – HR. what I recall. Yeah, H.R. Uh, 15 – yeah, that's that's fine, Sawyer. Um, um, H.R. Uh, 1536, which was introduced, I believe, in April of, 20, no, of 2011 – and it just it's just sort of sitting there you know uh, really nobody's been paying a lot of attention to it um it was introduced i believe back in april when this whole thing first blew up and it's a it's a short short bill in fact i'm looking at at the uh um looking at the bill online uh on www.opencongress.org um essentially stating that uh uh, quote being enacted by the Senate and the House of Representatives, House of Representatives of the United States. Um, the act may be cited as the Space Shuttle Retirement Act, uh, basically saying that uh, Atlantis stays at KSC, uh, Enterprise getting shipped out to California, um, and, uh, Endeavor going to Houston, and uh, of course uh, Discovery going to the Smithsonian. 
which is the way I kind of thought it was going to go down to begin with. But again, this this kind of sort of flies in in the face of the reason why these vehicles were put where they where they were initially designated. Really had nothing to do with historic significance of uh, of of uh, the space shuttle program at all and if anybody tries to go ahead and say that i think they're they're probably full of baloney it had more to do with with how many tourists are going to lay eyes on these vehicles period um, like it or not, L.A. is a tourist destination. Like it or not, New York is a tourist destination. Obviously, the Kennedy Space Center in uh, in Florida is its its visitor center is a is a heavily heavily <laughs> is a heavy tourist attraction. Well, I think to be fair, Gene, there that is a tourist attraction that's 50 miles from the largest tourist attraction in the world. Right. Definitely. It's definitely getting Disney World secondary traffic. Yeah, definitely. So that that's another big reason to leave uh, Atlantis right where, where she is. And, of course, um, uh, Discovery going to the Smithsonian as the, uh, as the uh, first, you know, as the surviving orbiter. I don't know. Again, this this is opening up an old wound. There's a lot of people in Houston saying we want this this vehicle here. Um, you know, how dare the Intrepid go ahead and change its uh, plans uh, midstream? Um, this shows that they didn't really have the whole package together, at least according to the folks over over in Houston. And um, a lot of a lot of the politicos over there are, are once again trying to steal um, steal the prize away. Uh, from New York, but are they going to be successful? I don't think so. I doubt it. And uh, you know, like it or not, New York Enterprise is coming your way. Um, I'm still remembering too the press reaction around here. There was some positive, but most of it was negative. In that, uh, uh, some me- media outlets calling it a fake orbiter. We had links to um, one of the uh, Daily News stories. Um, and uh, I, I was a little bit uh, taken aback by that reaction, quite frankly. You know, Enterprise is a you know historic vehicle. It was the prototype orbiter. It was the mold from which the other vehicles were were built from, and it uh, uh, served other roles as well uh, as the program evolved. Uh, also helped in the uh, the Challenger accident and the Columbia accident investigations. So um, it it has some some significant it has historic significance and New York should be thinking it's it's lucky stars it's getting it. I mean, Enterprise isn't just the prototype. I mean, it actually flew. It flew um, how many? Four, five, six uh, test landings. I think four. I think. But it's- either way, I know it flew at least I I think four. But either way, I, what I want to know is it, you know I think the people at Johnson Space Center probably understand the significance of that vehicle more than most Americans, why is an enterprise good enough for Houston? You know, why write the legislation in the doing a switcheroo instead of just saying, hey, New York really doesn't have its act together and they don't have the land purchased and I don't really like, you know, the setting it's going to be in. We can still do a better job. Why try to, you know, abscond endeavor from the California Science Center? In the meantime, it's kind of like a double ask. Like, what do you want? Do you want an orbiter or does it have to be in depth? Yeah, I mean, you were, Gina, just to uh, allude you to the where uh, the home is going to be, according to, and I'm looking at the uh, KHOU website here, um, 
this was uh, again a uh, a report by uh, their I guess their uh, Channel 11 news outlet there. Um, According to uh, the intrepid uh, folks, the museum officials now say they're going to put Enterprise across the street near a bakery, a car wash, and a strip club. Uh, so uh, Congress, Texas Congressman Ed Poe is not happy about that and is trying to go ahead and, and sponsor um, legislation along with, I guess, uh, Congressman Pete Olson um, to bring uh, – to try to steal Enterprise away from New York. And um, are they going to be successful? I don't think so. I I ultimately think Enterprise is going to stay well. Is going to go right where she said she was going to go. You know, where, right where NASA said she was going to go, and that's uh, that's to New York. And the reason is it's because it's it's going to be the place where more people are going to see her, um, other than than Houston. Do I think Houston deserves it? Absolutely. Um, the shuttle program was managed from there. Um, it was um, half the, the all the entire astronaut corps was trained there. Um, everybody that 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 took care of you know that indirectly you know cared for these vehicles um, lived in that area, worked at the Johnson Space Flight Center. So yeah, indeed, they you know, does, does Houston deserve it? Absolutely. Um, but are they going to get it? Probably not. I think this is probably th- – these are the, the politicos pandering to the base, and uh, they will they'll, – they'll, they'll make one last try at it, but I don't think they're going to be successful. I think Enterprise is going to be going to New York. Um, one other thing too, just, just on the whole topic, what would really be cool – is to, to give Enterprise a victory one final victory lap uh, at one I think it went on tour twice in its career. Um, it would be neat to go ahead and see if the money was there to to give Enterprise one you know one final world tour and and just to to let the world see her for a little while and then uh, then bring her back home at the end of that to to New York. Didn't Enterprise go on a world tour and? Weren't there talks of possibly sending all the orbiters on a world tour or at least getting one final family photo? Yeah, well, I think the family photo is going to happen, but I don't think the world tour is going to happen. I think, think the, the problem that is is once again money. Um, I, and I, I think because of the way the budgets are these days, I think uh, people are finding it, it will probably be – the money will probably be much more well spent on the space launch system and not on tours of, uh, of U.S. relics. All right, so that wraps up this episode of Talking Space. So once again, I'd like to thank you for joining us. And let's continue in the order that we went earlier. Thank you for joining us, Gina Hurley. You bet, Sawyer. Thank you as well for joining us, Gene McCulka. Always a lot of fun, Sawyer. And thank you as well, Mark Ratterman. And on a serious note, uh, I've got an answer for you to that question everybody's been wondering about. Why don't we see aliens here on Earth? And Dr. Harry Clore, who is the moderator of the Communicating Division panel, he had the answer for it. He said they've been, you know, speed of light and signals radiate from Earth. They've been watching our TV for a long time. They've seen these guys, Superman, the Terminator, some of these superhero dudes. They're scared of us. That's why they're not in the neighborhood. I think they think we're nuts and just going to leave us alone. <laughs> how, so, how did I know that you can never give a serious answer, Mark? So good night, everybody.
I knew to expect the worst, so thank you as well. And once again, we'd like to thank you for joining us. And as always, whether you're Superman, X-Man, or just a regular man or woman, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. Bye.